Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crossed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent within the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and this week we welcome to the show Keisha Thompson, a poet, a performance artist, a producer, a board member of ITC, Independent Theatre Council, and the boss of one of the major artistic hubs in Manchester. Keisha is the first Black artist and the youngest to be the full-time permanent artistic director and CEO of Contact, which is a 300-seat theatre and performing arts venue. She's been described as a trailblazer and an individual who consistently pushes the envelope, not only as an artist in her own right, but also now in a leadership role. Here is my conversation with Keisha Thompson. Keisha, so thank you so much for doing the show. Welcome. And how are you today? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm feeling quite mellow. Probably my hay fever kicking in, to be honest. But yeah, I'm having a good Monday. <laughs> okay, well, I hope it doesn't get too too bad for you. But um, yeah, it's the start of that season. I know some people in my family have it quite bad. So I do understand. Do understand. So I know that you are you you were born in in Manchester. I mean, if we take it right back to the start, could you tell us a little bit about how it all began for you up in Manchester? So I'm the only one, let's say, in my nuclear family that is a Mancunian, because ah. I'm the youngest of five, and the rest of my family are from Guyana in South America. So yeah, my mum came here, got married to my dad, who's from Jamaica. Uh, he was here from quite a young age, though. So he came here when he was five. And yeah, she went to London first, went to Manchester to visit a cousin and was like, I love it here. I want to be here instead. Um, and thank goodness that she did that because I adore Manchester. So I'm very much like a proud Manc. And for anyone who knows Manchester, I've grown up in South Manchester. So like near places that people would know probably is like Moss Eyed and Charlton and stuff like that. So that's like my area. But it's a beautiful area, very culturally diverse, a lot of access to the arts. And um, I suppose that really had an impact on me, just being able to be exposed to so many different cultures and religions. And I just kind of saw how it is possible to appreciate the variety of people in one big space and live quite harmoniously. Um, so that I suppose that that's been quite a passion of mine. Always like, yeah, from the beginning, just growing up. And then I was quite um, academically gifted, let's say. So I did really well in school and I loved being like creative and sporty and all that kind of jazz. So I was just one of those kids just doing everything. And yeah, like I said, I was in a great area and also let's acknowledge going I was growing up in the 90s where you know labor was in power and there was a decent level of investment for young people like myself so I had access to things that now I suppose I'd taken for granted when I look at what young people have access to now it's it's dismal to be honest and um yeah I'm just very appreciative of that yeah, I mean, you you said there that you are a proud Manc, and I I used to live up in Manchester only for about a year just before the Olympics, and um, so I, I'm quite familiar with with Manchester. I mean, what, what what do you think it is about Manchester? Because there are so many artists that have come from Manchester over the years. I mean, the ones that I'm more familiar with are kind of the bands, you know, like uh, obviously Oasis and 
Stone Roses even take that. Uh, Danny Boyle in in the kind of film industry. What, what do you think it's about Manchester that's contributed to so much of the uh, the art over the years? I suppose we've just got a really great history. Um, we've got a brilliant political history. We've got a great, as you're saying there, musical, but even wider than that, just an arts history, science as well, technology. You know, you can't deny that we are an industrial city. So we've benefited from having those colonial links, which meant that there's quite a lot of infrastructure there. There's quite a lot of opportunity. And I guess all of that just means that you're in a place where there's constantly stuff going on, different types of people intersecting. And that means that you have access to quite a variety of experiences, I suppose, but then also access to a lot of resources. So there's stuff to talk about and then there's ways to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm trying try to say it in the most simple terms. But yeah, so I think a marker for me whenever I have to leave the city and I do travel out a lot, I'm always missing something. And I'm always like, well, that just shows how brilliant my city is that every time that I leave, there's something going on. And I think in the way that I speak about Manchester quite passionately, there are a lot of people who feel this way and it gives you that sense of like legacy and this kind of duty even to like keep it going. So I think that's a part of it as well. Like you really do get a sense of belonging when you're from Manchester. And also it's nice when you travel out, like I've not even mentioned football or anything, but you know, I'll travel across the world and say Manchester and people are like, Manchester United, Manchester City. And you're just like, oh, people know where I'm from. Like, do you know what I mean? So it's stuff like that. It just makes you feel like, okay, I've got to keep this up or I've got to make sure that they understand what it's really about. Or whenever someone comes to Manchester, I'm like, I need to show you around or I need to tell you where to go if I can't personally take you around. And I get quite upset when I meet people and I'm like, oh, have you had a good time? And they'll go, oh, no, I didn't really see much. And I'm like, what? (laughs) It's like, excuse me. (laughs) And I have to just like immediately like rectify it. Um, Yeah. I mean, quite a few of those, in fact, all of the bands and the people that I mentioned, they were, they were white bands and, you know, Danny Boyle, another, another kind of white guy. Why, why hasn't there been more kind of black, well-known artists that have come from the area, apart from yourself, obviously? There has been. Yeah. Um, I feel a bit annoyed that I'm, I'm struggling at the moment because my head's so fuzzy. But yeah, when you when you were like, oh, you know, the Hass- even the Hacienda days, like it wasn't it wasn't white. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like they're the names that people know. But the Stone Roses, you had Rosetta in there. I know a woman who is deeply impactful. Uh, she's been deeply impactful on me and the scene, and she's called Yvonne Shelton, and she was fully in there. And she as she's done backing singing for Heather Small, but she's done backing singing for loads of people, and she always talks about that scene and yeah, I'm just, oh gosh, I'm really annoyed that I can't think of any names right now. But in terms of like grime, UK hip hop, like Manchester does the business constantly. Um, If you listen to people like Marianne Hobbs, if you speak to people Uh, like Giles Peterson, like whenever I go away to festivals across the country or abroad, most of Manchester's there. Like, I'm always like, oh, it's just Manchester, but just abroad. <laughs> you know, you got Eugenia G, you got Children of Zeus, you've got Children of Zeus, Chunky, yes. you've got 
there's just loads of people and you get a lot of people traveling to Manchester and then calling themselves honorary monks or people who come and record here, like Corinne Bailey Ray did her first seminal album at the Royal Northern College of Music. So it's just stuff like that, that there's a massive culture here. And I've not even started to talk about Asian Mancunians. That's a whole of a scene in itself. But yeah, in terms of the visibility, I suppose that is frustrating that, that people are not aware but there is quite a big scene and not even just now, like historically, you know, punk scene. A lot of people used to come to Manchester to listen to, um, oh goodness, not Motown. Oh, Northern Soul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like all of that, and that was deeply like multicultural. And even for me, when I started going out, I was going out to like warehouse project stuff before I was legally allowed to, <laughs> um, like going to like Boddington's factory and all that kind of stuff. And that was, I remember that just being loads of old rasters looking after me. <laughs> yeah. like, like, and the warehouse project that people know now is very, you know, young white students kind of vibe, but that's not what it was originally. Yeah. So hopefully I'm kind of helping to demystify that or you certainly rep for manchester i mean i think if there's anybody that should be repping apart from um what's the guy's name mr burnham i'm not sure what his first oh, name andy is. burnham exactly <laughs> uh it should be you that you should they should give you the job so um i'm just putting putting that out there but i think as, i mean we'll get into this a bit later but you you probably have a lot of dealings with him don't you as, as part of your job yeah yeah we cross circles many times he's doing a speech i'm doing a speech yeah <laughs> We'll get into that in a a bit. But um, you mentioned that your parents are from Guyana. Have you been there? And if you did as a kid, what what were your memories of of Guyana growing up? Yeah, so it's my mum that's from Guyana. um, And I've been four times. And gratefully so, the first time I went, I was five. That had a massive impact on me, just to see a different perspective, to see the family home, to see what it means to live off the land, to have that sense of autonomy, to see different people in society, all black. Do you know what I mean? So that sense of like hierarchy and whatever was washed away because I could just see that like you could be in any role in society and it doesn't matter what colour you are, which isn't necessarily what you can be exposed to when you're in the UK. The food was upsettingly beautiful <laughs> I remember crying <laughs> looking at my mum being like why have you let me eat all this fruit because when we go back to the UK it's going to be so bland and I'm <laughs> going to be so sad it was great and um it, it gave me a sense of myself but in a very nuanced way like I felt so at home there but I still understood I was like I'm British do you know what I mean? Like, I was like, I understand where I'm from and I very much feel like linked to Guyana, but I also know that this isn't my home and I feel more comfortable in the UK. And what does that mean? And it allowed me to start having an understanding of, of all of that. So I've gone back a couple of times, as you do, but now that I'm older, it will only be like, you know, if it's a special occasion or something like that. Whereas I prefer to explore places that I've not been to before, but I have got cousins who they go like literally all the time. They go there they're just like all the time and they know it like the back of their hand. And I can't say that I know it like that, unfortunately, 
But yeah, I do love that. I've still got family there. My oldest brother's there. And if I ever wanted to go there and live there, then I've got a family home there. And that's really a nice sense of of security. Right. I mean, we've we've interviewed quite a few people on this show, you know, people from different sort of industries, I guess. So people in the corporate world and stuff. And a theme that's come up more than twice, probably three or four times, is people that have had some success, but they haven't necessarily had their dad there throughout that period or even throughout the childhood. And even though I know you have a relationship with your dad, it's been slightly different from what other people's relationships have been. Are you happy to go into into that and how that impacted you as a, as a kid? Yeah, yeah. So I say that my relationship with my dad was intermittent, (laughs) as an intermittent child. But no, uh, my parents did a really great job of raising me and being amicable with each other. They got divorced when I was three, but I didn't really feel the brunt of it. They were extremely civil. My mum still used to like darn my dad's trousers and cook him soup and all that kind of (laughs) stuff. He was still coming around and... He converted to Islam and he used to take me to the mosque. So I used to go to church with my mom. We used to go to mosque with my dad and he used to come around and bring me books and things like that. So we still had quite a good relationship. And my second solo show and my book are about my relationship with my dad, which it wasn't the easiest um, because he's not the easiest man, (laughs) but that is fine. I had to grow up and and realise what he'd been exposed to as a young person coming from Jamaica, coming here, what he had to experience, how that's impacted him, his mental health, his family dynamic, his sense of himself, why he was then so insistent on me excelling academically, which I didn't mind, you know, it was stressful, but I'd preferred that than him not caring. So he really encouraged me and gave me a sense of I can make something of myself and setting the bar really high for myself. So I was really appreciative of that. So yeah, I've definitely gained from our relationship, even though it was very strange because most of the time it was just him pushing books through the door and hovering on my porch and asking me what my grades were (laughs) and telling me how to speed read. Has it, has it evolved in more recent years or is it, is it still pretty much how it was back then? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, he still lives in the same area, not that far, but we don't, we're not social, but he's not social with anyone really. And that's absolutely fine. Like I'm not going to try and demand anything more from him. And me and my younger brother, he had a second wife. We're relatively close and we use visits to my dad as an opportunity for us to connect and catch up with each other and yeah just go and see my dad and look after him you know it's not the normal dynamic but so what <laughs> still, he's still been there so that that's the most important thing yeah um I read elsewhere that um your school years were were pretty fun and I think your family kept encouraging you to sort of pursue your interest in the arts. Can you tell us a bit about your, your school years? So I was, classed, I was classed as gifted and talented. And even though I'm wildly social, in class, I actually liked being on my own. It was quite a struggle to get me to work in a group 
And I developed those skills eventually, but I just wanted to crack on and get on with it. So yeah, my family were very encouraging of me being creative and cultural and doing all that stuff. So I, I did a lot outside of class. I did Indian music and ballet and netball and basketball and net, knitting and everything. But when it was lesson time, they also instilled this sense of like, get on with it, put your head down. The system is like this. They'll try and do this and don't take any nonsense and just crack on. So I just did. (laughs) And I really used to get quite angry if I wasn't given extension, if I wasn't given homework, I'd create my own or I'd insist. And yeah, constantly was just going up to teachers and just being like, yeah, I've done this, I've done this. Give me something else, give me something else. And I'd just be off in the corner, just, just getting on with it. So that was my usual experience. And I loved school. Like if it got to half term, like two days in, I'd be bored and I'd be just a nightmare for everyone. I was like, oh, my brain's shrinking. Oh, I need to get back to school. <laughs> yeah, I just, I loved school. And yeah, I remember that like one day when my mum was being a bit, you know, a bit wild, a bit spontaneous. And she was like, oh, should we have the day off? Like, she was like, should we go shopping? And I just looked at her in disgust. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, you want me to take a day off? Do you know what you've just said? I was like, my God, woman. <laughs> I was just so mortified. Um, but I know that I was an exception. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you sound like a, every parent's dream. I mean, that's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Uh, but yeah, so that was my experience. I really enjoyed school. I managed to find a space and like, it wasn't like I was an extreme geek either. When I was outside of the classroom, I played with the bullies. I chilled with the bad kids. We had a vibe as well. I don't know how I managed to do that, but that's what I did. So I was able to be cool, let's say to an extent in the playground and then in the classroom, get away with being a massive geek. (laughs) (laughs) What a great balance to have. And then obviously your, um, the fact that your family were encouraging you in the arts led to you getting published at the age of 10. I mean, how how did that happen? Yeah. So again, it's part of being a part of a brilliant school that was really engaged in so many different projects. And one of them was this citywide project where young people are encouraged to think about migrant experiences, refugee experiences, asylum seekers, and write in response to that. So my first understanding of any experience like that was learning about Anne Frank. So I chose to write about her, write a poem about her, and it got picked. So it got published when I was 10. And that was extremely validating for me because I, st- I was had a little stride then, went into high school and was like, I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a professional writer. <laughs> yeah. um, I just had this vibe and then managed to get like published another two times in anthologies whilst I was in high school. And then by the time I was 16, I got a commission to respond to Emery Douglas at the Urbis Centre, which is now the National Football Museum. But Emery Douglas was the artist for the Black Panther movement in America. And he did an amazing, massive exhibition in Manchester. And I got to see it 
as a preview and then write in response to it and perform as like at this opening ceremony. And again, that was quite a pivotal moment for me because that was the first time where I was properly like paid and commissioned as a poet. And I was like, oh, okay. Like people want to hear what I have to say. Okay, I can do this and I get paid for it. Cool. What does that mean? And yeah, that definitely had an impact on some of my my life choices because at that point I was very much on the kind of, I'm going to go to university and I did go to university, but you know, like most kids, I was like, oh, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. But I started to think, oh, do I leave Manchester? That doesn't really make sense because I'm starting to get a name for myself here. Like people starting to know who I am. I'm getting work. I probably shouldn't leave. And I love Manchester anyway, so it wasn't a hard decision. But I remember like having that serious kind of, right, you're an artist now, you're a Manchester artist, you need to stay in Manchester, this will help you. As as you said, you know, getting these commissions, getting these paid gigs throughout your teenage years gave you almost like a shot of confidence, which is, which is fantastic. But I was just wondering, how did your friends react when you were, you know, you got this commission at the age of 16 or even, you know, back when you were 10? How did it affect your, some of your friendships? Yeah, my friends are always happy for me. Yeah. Um, they're either in similar groups to me, like in Portuguese, in choir and whatever, or they'd come and see me perform. Or, yeah, I just remember just my friends always being quite proud, actually, and to a surprising extent, do you know what I mean? Because I don't like, I let people know what I'm doing, but I'm not going to, like, boast about it or anything. And I'll say to people, oh, you know, I'm just doing this little show if you want to come. And then they'd all be there, like, front row. And I was like, oh, wow, like, they're here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. like, yeah, so many of my friends were like, oh, yeah, I was listening to your album. I'm like, oh, we, you listened to it. Like, I'm like, are they doing it because they think that they have to? And they're like, no, I, I, I like it. I was like, oh. <laughs> so I always find that really weird because I just make stuff. That's what I say to people, like, Obviously, I want people to engage with it, but at the end of the day, I, I just I just like making stuff. I can't not. So I'm always appreciative if someone actually like looks, looks at it or listens to it, and it and it does genuinely surprise me. <laughs> but yeah, I've got really great friends who are brilliant, like champions of my of my work. And you're now obviously the artistic director for the contacts and also uh, CEO, but your relationship with with the venue started all the way back when you were 15. How, how did you get involved with contact back then? Yeah, so I was in a choir called Manchester Youth Soul Choir and we performed in the foyer. It was like a curtain raiser for some kind of event. I don't even remember what. But yeah, I remember that being my first thing because prior to that I'd been in other cultural spaces mainly the Zion which is now Zed Arts on Stratford Road in Hume and they usually cater to a slightly younger demographic so I'd always had this sense of okay you're at Zion now but soon you're gonna have to like start going over to contacts because you're getting older and it was that thing of like oh you know you like you graduate and you you go over to contact and you you're a bigger artist or whatever else so yeah that was my first flavor of it and I remember just getting this kind of just excitement just being like whoa what is this place and 
seems like anything can happen here and anyone can come here, like just saw so many different types of people and different art forms flying around. And that was the same vibe at Green Room, which unfortunately lost its funding in 2010 and had to close down. Um, but I used to go there as well around that age and I liked that I'd walk into the building and not know what was going to happen. I was just like, I know something fun's going to be on or I'm going to meet someone exciting, doing something interesting. So yeah, I just started to go back to contact, not knowing what was going to happen. I wasn't necessarily going to go and see a show. You might just go around the back in the side of the cafe and someone's like stood on a table playing a guitar and you're like, all right, cool. <laughs> so it's just like... I just want to be here and be around these people and just see what's what's happening. And everyone's so friendly. So as soon as they know that you're like a writer or this or that, they're like, oh, come to this or try this. Or there's this competition. Have you thought about that? And two twos, you're just wrapped up in projects you didn't even know existed. So yeah, it's, it was a very welcoming space. And I know for some people, they've had a different experience and that's not just a contact at other places like that, where you can feel a bit intimidated maybe, or you go in and you're like, Oh, it's a bit clicky, but I don't, I don't know. I suppose that you've got to consider what your disposition is as well with obviously if people know each other and chatting, then yeah, there's a group there. Do you know what I mean? But is how exclusive is it? Are they allowing you to be involved and chipping in and asking where you're from? If so, then it's not that clicky, is it? So Yeah. I just felt a bit defensive sometimes when people would say that because I was just thinking, mm, I don't think that that's that's what actually how it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, if you think back to that time, you know, maybe around 16, 17, 18, what was your thinking? Did you think that the arts would become a career path for you? Or is the fact that you went to Manchester to study philosophy and politics, was that almost like a, I don't know, like a plan B for you? It was a yes and no. Like I always knew that the arts was going to be in my life. Like I couldn't not have that. But I also knew that there was this whole, you know, rhetoric and this narrative around, well, you need to get a serious job and you need to do this, you need to do that. So, and just knowing that I had these skills, knowing that I was good at maths, for example, it's like, well, don't waste that. Or you have an interest in law and politics, pursue that as well. Like they don't need to be in contention. Um, and they can complement each other. So because of all the experience that I'd gained from being connected to so many projects and and cultural events and venues, I didn't feel the need to formalise and get any qualifications. So it just never really, it just wasn't a thing for me to think about. And then I knew that I had all these other passions and interests. So when I picked politics and philosophy, it's because it felt like the most like expansive thing and non-prescriptive thing that would allow me to access so many different topics, stay open, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I just wanted to know how the world worked. So I was like, let me just pick something that will challenge me, but keeps me open. Because if I didn't pick that, I was going to do law and maths or philosophy and maths. Um Easy subjects, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I did work experience at solicitors and they were saying, they were like, don't do law, it's boring, you don't need to do it. Pick something that you're passionate about and then just do a law conversion course. It's just a year. So I was like, oh, cool, great advice. I don't need to read my eyes into a kind of, into a kind of black hole. 
And then, oh yeah, I managed to do like a kind of shadowing scheme before I got to university. So I got to meet a law lecturer and a law student and stuff like that and get a sense of it. And from the conversations that I had with them, they were like, you're more interested in policy. You're interested in the makings of law as opposed to the execution of it. So you should probably look into politics. You should probably look into philosophy. So I was like, oh, right, okay. So that was great advice as well. And I was definitely out of my depth. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, may as well do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, at that point, I was too used to just doing well. Yeah. And that sounds really, really bad, but it was good for me to have that slap in the face because, yeah, like I said, sometimes when you're in gifted and talented, you can get a bit complacent. So I was used to like, yeah, being that kid that was just, getting the top marks or like I said, going to the teacher and being like, I've done this. Can you give me something else? And then just getting on with it. So it was a good experience for me to struggle a little bit and not be at the top and have to really work to get the grades and whatever. So as much as it was difficult, I did, I did enjoy it. And again, I've read this somewhere else, but I read that at one stage you wanted to be an accountant. Now I don't know how long this was for, but for me, I mean, how do you go from being a published poet at 10, then getting a commission at 16, considering sort of philosophy and politics, and then want to become an accountant for uh, a few weeks? How, how does that happen? <laughs> so my high school was great in that we'd get so many different people coming in and visiting us. And I remember at the time I was thinking, okay, what things am I good at? What do I like? And obviously I was really good at maths. So I was thinking, what kind of um, careers can I touch on with, you know, this this skill? And accountant came up and I remember meeting an accountant and he was talking about the fact that he was self-employed and that he travels around the world and he can work in any kind of sector because all organisations have a finance department. And I remember just thinking, oh, that's really exciting. Like, that's that sounds really cool that you could have quite a varied career. So I did find it quite attractive. And I remember sharing it with one of my teachers and she was just a bit like, oh, yeah, it would suit you in some ways, but you'd get bored, like it's not creative. And I was like, well, it can be creative, but <laughs> maybe not in the best way. <laughs> in like a tax dodgy way. Um, <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I know, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But that was the feedback that I'd get all the time. Do you know what I mean? So when I was being an artist, people were like, oh, but don't you like maths? I was like, yeah. And it was like, when I was doing stuff like that, they were like, oh, but aren't you this? And I was like, those things don't work in contention for me. So I was just constantly looking for opportunities where I could merge all of my skills. And strangely, producing became one of those places because I was doing budgets. I was writing funding bids. I was working with young people. I was being creative. I was was doing all the stuff. Um, And yeah, I didn't realise that that kind of role would, would chime with me in that, in that way. But I've been developing an idea over a number of years now. I've trademarked it. So it's called Decipher. And it's me exploring how do I teach mathematics? How do I cultivate mathematical pedagogy as an artist? So in non-educational spaces, I'm not trying to be a teacher. I'm just being an advocate for mathematical thinking and logic and the history of mathematics and how integrated it is in our 
society and how much it is needed for us to make that kind of cultural shift away from this kind of collective discalculate that we have in this country. <laughs> um, there are so many people that are like genuinely traumatised by mathematics and it's something that I want to address and I feel like I'm in a good position to address it and there are loads of people already doing that great work so I'm just like, okay, where do I fit into this? And yeah, prior to getting this role at Contact, I went to Singapore for a month doing a residency with Esplanade Theatre as an artist researcher. And I was just speaking to loads of mathematicians and visiting schools and visiting artists and just trying to figure it out because there's something called the PISA test, which is a test that goes around the world testing young people who are between like 14 and 16 in terms of um, maths, language comprehension and science. And Singapore comes out top for maths, like all the time. So I was just like, okay, what's going on there? <laughs> what are those young people doing? What's happening? And um, so I was like, I've got to go over there and see what's happening. So yeah, that was super interesting. But yeah, so being an accountant didn't seem like a strange thing for me. And it still doesn't now. Like yeah. I could be an accountant now. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, you must also be a big supporter of what Rishi Sunak is suggesting then in terms of getting everybody to do maths up until the age of 18? To an extent. To, a, to an extent, yeah. To an extent. In terms of how that is executed, his views on the education system and who should have access to what and why people should be t- t- um, exposed to maths, we probably differ quite a lot, <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> but I won't be too presumptuous, you know, Let's have a chat, Rishi. Let's see what you're about. I'm up for him being an advocate for it, but it's got to be for the right reasons. And if it just means pushing through what Michael Gove put in place and did to the curriculum whilst I was studying to be a maths teacher, then I'm not interested because that was an absolute mess. And um, it's caused a lot more damage. It was deeply frustrating. And that's why I left the education industry in that way because I was like I cannot be molded by these people who are just playing party politics and have no genuine interest in young people and pedagogy and respecting teachers as experts and they've never stepped foot in a school and they want to tell us how to teach like I'm just not here for it and I've not got time for it and I'm not going to be part of this system, I'm not going to be complicit in it, like, I'm out. So it's just like, I still am so deeply passionate about teaching, but I can't be a teacher. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot There's a lot of teachers that feel like that, and they've, you know, they spent, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the industry, and they're, you can just tell by their faces that they've had enough. But they, yeah. You know, the dis- oh, the, you just feel disrespected. You literally mm. just feel disrespected on a day-to-day. And you're, you're already getting disrespected in a way that's completely foreseeable by a bunch of teenagers, but that's just standard. That's part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So you're like, well, I need it. I need some support somewhere. <laughs> I'm going because, oh, so it's just, it's a lot. And, and I think the thing that makes it even more frustrating is you look at places like Finland, you look at places like Canada and you're like, we know what a good model looks like. Don't stress the kids out. In place in Scandinavian countries, they don't even do formal lessons. They essentially have like a forest 
school model until the kids are seven. And they have the same grades when you look at what they attain. There's no disparity really in terms of what their kids manage to achieve and what our kids manage to achieve by the end of primary school. But the difference is their children have got a better sense of well-being and confidence and creativity. And you're just like, well, why don't we do what they're doing then? Like, why is it so hard? It's just, it's just ridiculous. And that's why I used to get frustrated when I was training because we'd be shown all these models of lessons from around the world and I would do really creative lessons and engage children that I would be told were unteachable, which I thought was vile anyway. But I'd be creating all these lessons and then getting credit for it and getting told it was brilliant, but then also being told, oh, Ofsted wouldn't like this because there's not enough writing in the books. There's not enough this, there's not enough. And I was like, well, Ofsted needs to head out then, innit? Like they need to change their model. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, how am I doing something wrong like, what are you actually telling me to do here? I got, I don't understand what the feedback is. So I was just like, I can't play this game. I'm done. Yeah, I feel like I've just gone on a bit of a rant and a waffle there and I've not even answered your question. No, no, no. I mean, so, I mean, so it sounds like you got out just in time. I mean, you did this, you did this PGCE. I mean, were, were you thinking while you were doing it that you would be going to become a teacher and then you just kind of just got disillusioned by it? No. So it was always a backup for me okay. and my tutors were getting annoyed with me because they could tell that I wasn't applying for jobs. So literally like every week someone would come in from the course and go, Oh, I've got a job. I've got a job. And everyone's like, Woo. Yay. And yeah, my tutors were like, are you actually applying for jobs? I was like, no. And they're like, what are you doing? I went, well, I'm also writing this solo show and I just need to finish it off and I need to tour it. (laughs) Just like, you what? I was like, listen, I just need to finish this show and then I'll I'll teach. Don't worry. Like, don't you worry. I will be in a classroom. Because I knew that after doing your PGCE, you had five years to do your NQT year, your newly qualified teacher year. So I was like, I'm going to go back to freelancing. Then I'll go back to teaching. It's fine. Because before that, before I got this formal qualification, I was in schools anyway because of the level of experience that I'd had from doing... um, poetry and theatre workshops and stuff like that I actually had quite a significant level of like safeguarding training behaviour management training experience in schools so I was working for an agency as a supply teacher without having a PGCE so I know I was like I know that experience is king I know that I can go into an interview scenario and go look I know I don't tick the job description in this way but this is my experience and I know how to manage a group of young people. I know how to teach. And they're like, yeah, cool. So that's how I've always felt with like any kind of system that I can essentially, as long as I can articulate myself, I can, I can do what I want. <laughs> do you know what I mean? People have a system set up for efficiency and whatever else so that you can compare and do whatever. And that all makes sense. But you really have to have a sense of yourself and go, yeah, I can see what you're trying to do here. I can see what you need. I fit that box, but just not in the way that you thought. So when I was training, I already knew that it was a backup. I did want to teach, but I was like, it will be on my terms and it will be in the way that I want to, but I just need to have this experience. I need to know what it feels like to train and be a teacher if I'm ever going to be able to speak in critique of it. So yeah, that was the intention. 
So this this show that you you talked about, I wish I had a moustache. Yeah. How did that go? And uh, what was your experience of doing that tour? Yeah, it was fun. It was a good challenge that I set to myself. I was part of a festival that Contact used to run called Flying Solo, which was encouraging artists to create a solo show. And there was a pitch at the end. So you do a week of workshops, you do a pitch thing. I didn't win. A brilliant artist called Sophie Willen did, who's like BAFTA winning and all that kind of stuff now. But even though I didn't win, a lot of people came up to me and they were like, you still need to do this. This is a great idea. So I then connected with a fellow artist who was just getting into producing himself called Reese, And he was like, I'll write the funding bid for you. Let's do it. So he supported me massively. We wrote a funding bid together, got the money, developed the show, and then got another funding bid go through to then tour it. And yeah, it was a great experience for me to put that together and just know that I could hold a space, hold a stage for at least an hour on my own, telling a story that I'm deeply passionate about. So that gave me such a boost as an artist, but also just as like understanding myself as like, let's say like a project manager or as a co-producer, just being like, oh, you can just make stuff happen. You can get people on board. You can go to a venue. You can put a funding bid in. You can get money. You can just put something on. You can do it. So that was really galvanising. So from that point, I was just like, right, (laughs) what's next? Um, But the show in itself was super fun. It was a feminist comedy and I made sure I had a male director, which for some people might sound really strange, but I was like, I need something to push against and I don't want something that's insular and I don't want to preach to the converted and I need to do the work. So I need someone who, you know, if I mention someone like Judith Butler, they're not going to be like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. They're going to be like, who? And why should I care? (laughs) So it just makes me do the work, makes me bring it down, stops me from being complacent. What I'm sort of less clear about is how did you go from doing that that show to the contact kind of tapping you on the shoulder and and like, you know, Keisha, can you come back and run the whole joint for us? How how, how did that happen? Um, So when I finished my PGCE... They brought me in as a freelancer to manage the young company because the producer at the time was on sick leave and they were just about to start a project and they knew that I had this kind of teaching experience so that I'd be able to just hit the ground running and do it. Then the job went out formally and I remember my boss was like, are you going to go for it? And I was like, should I go for it? She was like, well, you're doing the job now. I was like, oh, yeah, true. But I was just like, well, I've just kind of been brought in as a freelancer and I'm supposed to go and teach somewhere now. I need to go and be a maths teacher. But she was like, well, you're doing a really great job, so I'd go for it. So I was like, all right, went for it and then ended up being there for six years and absolutely loving it and started to then have these ideas of like, okay, well, how does maths still fit into my life? How I'm still passionate about that. How do I still work on that. I'm really enjoying being a producer, but my ideas just keep getting bigger and bigger and I'm more ambitious. And I was writing funding bids and putting bigger projects on, touring with the company. And I was just getting a sense of like, yeah, I'm really growing here and I need to take myself out and see what's next. Like I need to take that leap. Like I absolutely adored working at Contact. And I was getting people being like, when are you going to leave? When are you going to do this? Why aren't you going to work for this? Why aren't you going to work for that? And I'm like, yeah, I know I could, but I'm happy here and I'm getting to develop. And there are so many things that you can take for granted 
being in a space like that that really values you as a full person and I don't want to just go to another place that's got like the credibility but I'm not actually enjoying it or I don't have a great relationship with my boss for example or or things like that so I was really careful about when I would leave and then I saw that there was a it was just during the pandemic actually that there was an opportunity at the Arts Council to work as a senior manager in their children and young people's department um, and it was maternity cover. So I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> I was like, I'll dip me toe. I'll leave. So I approached contact. I was like, can I do it as a secondment? And they're like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Even though my boss was like, I don't think you're going to come back. And I was like, I'm going to come back. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did the Arts Council thing and then came back and I was like, nah. I, as much as I love contact, I was like, my head's somewhere else now. Like, I've had a taste of, you know, strategy and policy and doing senior level work. and the thing that I was dead worried about was like, oh, well, I'm not going to get to like, you know, be in the rehearsal room and be with the young people and stuff. And, you know, you do sacrifice that, but there's a reason why and you can still make sure that you engage. And I still make sure I do workshops and things like that where I can. So I still have those instances where I'm just on the lev- on the ground level, just teaching a bunch of people how to write a poem. Like I have to do that every now and again. But my head is somewhere else. It's trying to make the most impact the most lasting impact structural impact so that is the sacrifice that I have to have to make so because they'd seen that I'd gone to the arts council and I was doing all these things when then the role of AD came up yeah a lot of people from contact outside of contact like yeah it was pressure like a lot of people like are you gonna go for that you should go for that sending me the link and I was just like yes I'm gonna go for it don't worry (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it was really scary because I was just thinking well if I don't get it like so many people know that I've gone for it and they're like well do you know what I mean it was it was pressure but at the end of the day I was just like I know who I am I know I've got to offer and I've put it on the table and either they want it or they don't and I shouldn't just think, oh, because I've been at contact for so many years and they know me that I'll get it. There may be someone who is more suited to this role. And that's absolutely fine as well. And I did say that in the interview, I was like, I want what's best for contact. So pick me or pick whoever's going to do the do what needs to be done. <laughs> that will make me happy. You got the job. You yeah. got the job. So I, know you, I know you've been in the job for just under a year now, but how... How has it been? How has it differed from what your expectations of the job were? I know you've kind of been doing the job anyway, but has it has it turned out differently from what you expected? Not necessarily. I mean, the team's great. I love my team. And I went in expecting to be slapped in the face, expecting not to know what it would involve, expecting it to be demanding. And yeah, it has been all of those things. I guess I was already aware of the sector and how difficult things would be. And it's like, you know, we're still post-pandemic, post-Brexit. There's, it's not easy out there. It's hard to tour work. Funding's more competitive. So I knew what I was stepping into. But yeah, I suppose you still got to just check in with your emotions, check in with the pace that you want to go at, check in with your team, make sure that they're feeling supported and just keep recalibrating, keep being responsive and not get bogged down so I've kind of gone in with a vision and with clarity but from the beginning I've said I'm here to share this and shape this with you so one of the first things that I did was I had a one-to-one with every single member of staff and there was 40 members of staff so that took 
a lot of time. Yeah. Um, but it was important. I was just like, you know, I can't just come in and bulldoze. That's just not my vibe. That's not the way. And that's not the way to work with people. So I need to understand what's going on here, what the context is, what everyone's experienced. If we understand things in the same way, when I say young person and you say young person, do we mean the same thing? And one of the questions that I asked, and so many people were surprised by this, I was like, what do you expect from me as the, as the AD? What is it that you're expecting me to do? I should be aware of that. And the answers were so varied. One that was really lovely that a few people said was, I expect you to be a poet. Like I'm still expecting you to to be your artistic self. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Thank you for giving me that permission. Um, and I was like, what does that mean? What does that look like? So I've been just doing little things like every week I do a tanker on a Thursday and it might be promoting a show or it might be just talking about something that's happening at Contact. But it's a very short form. It's a five-line poem. But again, it's just a little thing. It's a fun little thing for me to do. Keeps me creative I get little hits from it. People are like, oh yeah, a little tanker or whatever. So, and it's just stuff like that where it's like, what does it mean when I'm in this space? And I'm just getting to explore that and embrace embrace that. Um, whilst also doing all the really serious stuff that is not boring. You know, so many people go, oh, how are you dealing with the boring stuff? And I'm like, it's not boring. That stuff excites me as well. Like, that's why I'm in this role. I don't need to diminish that side. I don't need to... There's this kind of fetishization, I suppose, of being an AD that you're just kind of running around, just having all these wacky ideas and everyone's just kind of running behind you trying to make it work. And you're like, no, I can be extremely serious and business minded whilst also rolling around and being covered in glitter. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice image to have. But, um <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, in terms of your appointment, I, I guess there were quite a few firsts in your appointment. I mean, you, you were the first poet to run a multi-arts venue. You were the first black woman to run the venue. You were the first Mancunian to run the venue. I believe, I'm not sure if this is correct, you've been the youngest to run the venue as well. Yeah. So which, which of those do you think are you most proud of? Which means the most to you, I guess? I think the Mancunian one. Yeah. I'm probably the youngest one. In terms of being like a black woman, that's important, but it's no surprise. And we know the structural things that mean that, that have led us to this point as to why. So there's more for me to kind of shout about on a personal level as being like a young mank. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm just very passionate about the space being relevant and repping Manchester and connecting with local artists. So that that's why that excites me. And then it's a space that represents youth leadership and having young people at the centre. When I joined, 50% of the board was young people. Everyone that's recruited into the organisation has to see a senior panel and a young people's panel we're constantly engaging with young people and making sure that they feel heard and seen and not in a tokenistic way, not in like, oh, you're just a participant. Like, no, and we really value what youth is and acknowledge that it's such a different time in your life and you think differently, you take risks differently, your brain is literally wired differently. And what does that mean? So I'm happy to kind of be a part of that story by being the youngest AD. 
at this point in time. Excellent. Now I know we're we're coming to a close, so I won't won't keep you too much longer. But one question that we always ask the guests that come onto the show is, you know, you've had all this success in your career, in your young career to date, as you've just mentioned. How much of your success to date has been down to luck, hard work, or talent? If you had to choose one of the three, what would you say has been most responsible for your success? <laughs> That's very difficult because <laughs> it's definitely a mixture, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I'd say hard work because I think if you were to just say talent, then you're talking about someone being, uh, let's say, precocious. Is that the right word? But yeah, you can have the potential, but you've got to articulate it. You've got to hone it. So you can have a disposition to be a brilliant artist, but it doesn't just happen like that. Like a lot of my friends who are extremely talented and gifted, they rehearse every day. You can't just rest on it. You can't take it for granted. So I think the hard work is definitely a part of it. And I know so many people who are talented and don't get any work because they don't, like they can't do basic things like turn up on time or respond to an email. (laughs) You're just like, well, how do you think that you're going to get out there or that people are going to want to work with you? So you can't just rest on talent. That doesn't work. And that is deeply subjective as well. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's that. And then, yeah, obviously luck plays a part in everything, isn't it? But again, the way I personally see a part of my work as being curious and looking for opportunities and being proactive. So I don't sit and wait. I'm always out there saying to people, I'm visible, I'm doing this. What are you up to? What's going on? So I'd say that that is a part of your work to be like deliberately curious, to be like actively looking for opportunities. So that isn't luck, that's research. Uh, so yeah I guess I'd say hard work hard work hard work most people have gone for that actually that's 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 really interesting and you've already kind of answered this question I mean usually we ask people if you weren't doing what you're currently doing what would you be what other career would you have gone down and you've already kind of said it's you know you were looking at becoming a teacher so if I didn't do this job at contact I defo would have been freelancing. I would have been doing like a lot of consultancy, a lot of artistic residencies, and I would have been developing Decipher. That's what I was going to do. I was going to set up Decipher as a formal project, try and get some funding for it. I'm still trying to do that, but I'm just taking my time with it and seeing how it connects with what I'm doing at Contact and our education strategy there. But yeah, that's where my head was. I was like, I'm going to set this thing up formally. I'm going to do some teacher training, I was even like, should I do it? Is it, is this the time for me to set up a board? So yeah, I was at that point where I was going to just set up my own, my own project whilst funding it at the side with, with various commissions, but just being really selective about that. Great. Great. And where, where can people find out a bit, a bit more about what you're got lined up for contact and also personal projects? I mean, are, are you still performing as an artist or is that on the yeah, so I'm just being really selective. I've yeah. just started a residency that's going to be a year-long residency with Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And um, I'm going there every month and developing my ideas. And the first time that I'll probably perform for that will be in the summer, so around July. 
and then I might do something else in autumn but my main thing for them will come out in March so I'll, I'll do little things here and there like I performed last week for example for the rap party for Inuit Ellums in London that was a nice little poetry gig so yeah I can't help it but I just have to be really really measured <laughs> about when I do stuff because I just get exhausted so yeah when I started to do this role I did a gig the other day at Band on the Wall and my goodness <laughs> took a lot out of me like I got there too early I'd not read the email properly I was there too early and then I was sat there literally just sleeping in the foyer they woke me up did the sound check and then I came back to perform and I just messed up my first song and I was like do you know what I went I'm tired I went let's start this again <laughs> I was like can I have a light I went, because we sound checked and there was a light and now there's not a light and I can't read my notes so the technician like ran over and brought a light for me I was being such like <laughs> like a diva not not a diva but a diva do you know what I mean I was like yeah. right let's start again everyone <laughs> so, <laughs> I went away from that gig and I was like yeah maybe maybe no <laughs> okay so where, where can people are you on Instagram yeah I'm Twitter? on Instagram so yeah. it's Shibi Kiki um on Instagram or go on the contact website I've got a website it does need updating but it's still got stuff on there but yeah mainly active on Instagram and Twitter. But we'll see how long that lasts. So. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, Keisha, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much to Keisha. Great to hear her passion for Manchester. As I said, I used to live up there and I know it is a great city. That's it for now. That's it for, for this week's show. Check us out on the socials, How I Crushed It, and catch you on the next show.